Now, we're going to jump into Psalm 112, um, but you could keep your finger in 111. They're probably close to one another in your Bible. If you have to flip back, then you're going to have duty tonight. Uh, Because really, 111 and 112 are tied together. I'm going to make a couple comparisons, but I'm not going to teach 111 to you. I'm not doing all your work for you. You go do it yourself. So I'm going to just give you a little bit here of the connection. But 111 speaks of God at work in unique ways. And 112 speaks about the godly man or person or woman at work here. And it builds off of God's character as reflected in that godly man or woman and their life. So we're going to focus on 112. I'm going to mention a couple verses from 111 just to show you some of those comparisons. But for your homework, you could go home and do the rest of that comparison yourself. So we'll begin in verse 1. It says this, Praise the Lord. Blessed is the man who fears the Lord, who delights greatly in his commandments. His descendants will be mighty on earth. The generation of the upright will be blessed. Wealth and riches will be in his house, and his righteousness endures forever. Unto the upright there arises light in the darkness. He is gracious and full of compassion and righteous. A good man deals graciously and lends. He will guide his affairs with discretion. Surely he will never be shaken. The righteous will be in everlasting remembrance. He will not be afraid of evil tidings. His heart is steadfast, trusting in the Lord. His heart is established. He will not be afraid until he sees his desire upon his enemies. He has dispersed abroad. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. His horn will be exalted with honor. The wicked will see it and be grieved. He will gnash his teeth and melt away. And the desire of the wicked shall perish. So we have this description here of this godly individual in life, in a lot of circumstances. Again, this is is things that are true about the godly individual. This is not everything that could be said. These are particular things that could be said. Uh, He talks about the godly in wealth, and we'll look at that, but he also talks about the godly in darkness. So it doesn't mean that every person who's godly is going to be a millionaire. or right. It's just taking a picture. There are godly people. What are they like even in wealth? And what are they like in darkness or difficult or hard circumstances? So he's drawing this comparison and picture out for us. Again, we'll go back to verse 1 in the beginning. It says, Praise the Lord. Blessed is the man who fears the Lord, who delights greatly in his commandments. The psalm begins with a word of praise to God and his faithfulness to the godly individual. God, of course, is the one who gives us our righteousness. He is the one who communicates anything that is good to us through himself. And he's the one who deserves the praise in the end. But there is, notice, a blessing to be found with the person who fears the Lord and that delights in his commands, the things that he says, him and his word. Always those two things are inextricable. People want to pull those two apart, but you can't pull God and his word apart. Who he is and what he says are connected. And my attitude toward his commandments 
is going to be a direct reflection of my attitude toward him. He says, Jesus, if you love me, keep my commandments. He immediately ties together our relationship and our thoughts toward what he says. If somebody's talking to you and you're just ignoring the things you're saying, they're saying to you, you obviously don't care very much about that person. But when a person is very in tune to what you're saying, it shows, oh, they care. This person has interests in me. If it becomes a romantic interest and you care about everything they say, right? If it is, you know, the teacher in school, blah, 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 right? And then the teacher gets upset because you don't care about what I'm saying here and maybe even me personally. So these two things are always tied together, but particularly in Scripture, the godly individual knows that. They fear God and they delight greatly in his commands, Matthew Henry would say, it is a pleasure to him, that godly person, to be found in the way of his duty. And he is in his element when he is in the service of God. The godly person loves to do God's commands. He loves to serve God. He loves to be found in the place where he can serve God. It is not a burden to him. It is a delight to him. And even in the places where we find difficulty, it's not because God has a problem. It's because I have a problem. His commands are not the hard things. The hardness of my heart and overcoming, that is the hard thing. He is good. And his word has to be received as from him, his person. Paul, when he went to Thessalonica and then wrote 1 Thessalonians, he would say this to them. 1 Thessalonians 2.13 says, For this reason we also thank God without ceasing, because when you received the word of God which you heard from us, you welcomed it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth the word of God which effectually works in you who believe. Paul said, Here's what I was happy about when I came and I shared. You didn't receive it as the word of Paul. You received it as the word of God. As it is in truth, the word of God. And look, this is challenged everywhere, all over the place, particularly in our culture. It will always be challenged that we can think one thing about God and something else about his word. It's not true. It's one of the reasons that people fill up buildings churches all over and they walk out and something unique happens in one individual's life and nothing happens in another individual's life. It's because some people come and they listen and what they hear is a guy talking or someone talking. It's words. They're nice ideas. But other people come and they hear the word of God. God says something to them. And that's what makes all the difference. People can walk into a building and it's all kind of this dreamy, nostalgic unreality where you never even expect that anything's going to be said to change your life or make a difference or that needs to be responded to. And you hope that you have some semblance of entertainment or, you know, being kept awake during the service. And if you go out, then it was good. 
Or maybe if you were emotionally stirred a little bit, it was okay. The reality is, the godly person comes, and because they fear God, they delight greatly in hearing his word. What do you have to say to me, God? It's not even about learning something new. Sometimes we could go to church, and especially when we're first saved, it's all new. And we're learning these things, and we're loving it, we're drawing them in. And then after a while, a lot of things aren't new anymore. I know the history. I know the background. I know illustrations. I know the commentary that guy read. I know the things that they're, and there's not as much new there. And then we're not as excited. I need to go listen to somebody who's new, we call connoisseur of podcasts and teachers and kind of farm out our Christian life, the word of God, to have always something new put in our lives. I don't need that. I need the word of God. God, what are you trying to say to me? What do you have for me? Because how I relate to your word is how I relate to you. If it's distant and unreal, then my relationship with you is going to be distant and unreal. If it's up for debate, then my relationship with you is going to be up for debate. But if it is as it is in truth, the word of God, everything changes. If I take it like I'm one of the disciples sitting at Jesus' feet, everything changes. If I take it as if this has the same authority as David sitting there singing it to me, or Elijah showing up and talking to me, or Moses coming down with it written on a tablet of stone, because it is, then everything changes. The godly individual is fascinated by God's word because they are gripped by God. I want to know his will. I want to know his purpose. I want to know his call. I want to hear from him. They delight in it like a a naturalist or a scientist delights in God's creation. There's something there that they can connect to, they can find, they can learn, they can grow in. The godly individual loves that. They delight greatly in those things, and they fear the one who speaks them. And it's important for us to think, all right, Lord, how do I relate to your commands? Do I delight greatly in them? What type of profit do I have in your commands? It doesn't matter if they're new or old. It's not just about what I know. It's about the distance traveled. How far along the path of do all things without grumbling and complaining have I come, Lord? What blessing have I found in those things? About his commands toward forgiveness or kindness or faithfulness. This year has been challenging in a lot of ways, right? I think the church has been challenged in new ways, things that we've never faced before. What does civil disobedience look like? The racial things, the political things. How is a Christian supposed to act in a pandemic? What are... We have all these kind of new things, and and what happens is, as we think through them, maybe we're finding out, I assume you are, like I am, oh Lord, maybe I'm not as far along the path of this command as I thought. 
It's a little easier to talk about kindness when things aren't on the line or when I'm not frustrated. What, what Lord, profit? How have I explored these things? What is there to know in them still? What delight haven't I found? What blessing is there still to be received? The godly man or woman wants to find those things. And they hear from him. And they respond. 2 and 3, it says this. That his descendants will be mighty on earth. The generation of the upright will be blessed. Wealth and riches will be in his house and his righteousness endures forever. Here we have this godly character also being passed down even in greater measure than riches. The person is more important certainly than the property, but there is a picture of a person who is righteous and wealthy. We see that, of course, through the scriptures. We know Abraham Bible says it was overloaded with silver and gold. I think all of us would like to try that at least. We know, of course, Joseph, extremely wealthy, rough road there. But he was wealthy, David wealthy, beyond really our imagining. What he gave just to see the temple built was incredible. Certainly, Daniel Probably very wealthy in the position that he finally rose to. There's many individuals through scripture that are pictured as wealthy. But what we find in them is those riches uh, don't change them being, notice, upright, sincere. There might be wealth in a house, but it stays in the house. It's not just in the hand and it's certainly not in the heart. This individual has something to pass down more than just the wealth, although that's a blessing and it is good to have something to give. I think that's part of it. It's a godly way to deal with some of those things. But what becomes enduring forever, look at verse 3, is their righteousness. How they live in the middle of those things is what really matters This life and how we live it matters eternally. We're constantly encouraged not to become weary in well-doing, knowing that our labor is not in vain. The righteousness is something that endures forever. If you look at Psalm 111, both are set up the same 10 verses, and you'll see a contrast between them being built. But again, verse 3 in Psalm 111, His speaking of God work is honorable and glorious, and his righteousness endures forever. And the same thing is said now about this godly man or woman in this passage in 112. His righteousness endures forever. It is God's that is shared and reflected. It is something eternal that happens in their life that is more than just the wealth that they might possess in terms of financial things. Not only that, You look as it goes down in verse uh, 4. He says, Unto the upright there arises light in the darkness, and he is gracious and full of compassion and righteous. If you again look at verse 4 in 111, when it talks about the, the Lord, his wonderful works, remember, the Lord is gracious and full of compassion. Again, this man reflecting God's character, the God that he serves is gracious and full of compassion and the godly man or woman is also gracious and full of compassion 
because that's who he is. It is their person. It's not just private. You will notice that. There, there is something more there that is public. It is recognized. Certainly is recognized first by God. It starts as something private. But then it moves out. It flows out from this person to others. He doesn't act in grace and compassion just to be seen as righteous. They are those things. That is why that is seen in their lives. It's not something they put on. Is something they are. And you know the difference, basically, when a person does something just for a certain response. If I am kind, just so you will be kind back to me, and then when you're not kind back to me, I'm not kind either, then that tells me something. Where is my kindness coming from? Maybe only in relation to the people all around me. When really it should be coming from me. Right? Jesus Christ, his circumstances didn't affect what was in him. All that came out was righteousness. No matter where he was, if things were difficult or if things were easy in the moment. You and I, if we are going to be like him... We have to be like him in those things. There needs to be, in our life, a graciousness and a compassion and a righteousness. Sometimes the two get pitted against one another. We can't be gracious and compassionate while being righteous. Righteous being doing what is right. But we can. God is that way. God is both gracious and compassionate and 100% righteous. He rebuked sin and freely continued to be gracious and compassionate to people. He judged things rightly. Again, the world will press this so that we're only what they would consider to be gracious or compassionate without the enduring righteousness that God displays. And we, if we're going to be like him, hold the two. And not only in good times, I think that is what the beginning of the verse is saying to us, particularly in the beginning of 4, unto the upright there arises light in the darkness. What it shows is a godly individual in a dark spot. Maybe some of you feel like you are there. That can be real. The godly individual can be in a dark spot, a difficult place. But what it's saying is, because of who God is, there will arise a light in the darkness for that individual. They won't be there alone. You know, I think of Jesus Christ in two of his most difficult positions, one being in the wilderness, tempted of Satan for 40 days and nights, and then in the garden, praying, facing who knows what type of spiritual difficulty and hardship. After both of those occasions, the Bible tells us angels were literally sent to strengthen him. God is gracious and compassionate. 
if if he if he gets us to the point where we need supernatural intervention, he will send supernatural intervention. Light rising in the darkness. Micah, I love these verses. Micah 7 says this, <clears throat> beginning in verse 7, Therefore I will look to the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. Do not rejoice over me, my enemy. When I fall, I will arise. When I sit in darkness, the Lord will be a light to me. I will bear the indignation of the Lord because I have sinned against him until he plead my case. He executes justice for me. He will bring me forth to the light and I will see his righteousness. You see, the, the scriptural idea of righteousness does carry the idea certainly of rightness, but it also carries the idea of vindication. When it says God is going to be righteous, and the righteous one, or he will bring sometimes vengeance. The idea there can be vindication. I will be vindicated for having put my trust in him, for having leaned on his word, for having stepped out and put my faith in him, for having kept his commands. This godly individual, like the God he serves, his work will be gracious full of compassion and righteous. Verse 5, it says, a, a good man deals graciously and lends, and he will guide his affairs with discretion. We see here this giving nature as well. Again, if you look at verse 5, it speaks about the Lord giving food to those who fear him, being mindful of his covenant. That's constantly being the provision for his people just like God will provide and give, this good, godly man deals graciously and lends. He will guide his affairs with discretion. The godly are godlike in their giving nature. They're open-handed. They're wise stewards of the things that the Lord puts in their possession. Part of their wealth comes from prudence and faithfulness. It's not just magic. God's not making everybody who's righteous hit the lottery. That's not what it's talking about. Part of it is the way that they work. Part of it is God's blessing on their life, certainly. But they have a discretion in their affairs. It's connected to God and who he is. It's not all about them. Their purpose and possessions isn't simply to become rich and indulge, but to share. Uh, there's a particular godly, wealthy man once that was asked, how, how do you deal with like owning things and then covetousness? How do you know you're not being covetous in a scenario? And I liked his answer. His response was, well, my wealth has a purpose. He says, whenever there's a purpose behind my money, it's going towards something. I know what all of it is going towards. There's none of it just floating around randomly where I'm just living for me. Each, each place of his wealth, he said, there was a purpose behind it. Whether it was for family or whether for an inheritance or whatever, but each place had a purpose. He said, and that purpose I received before the Lord. He, he was honoring as a steward, the things put in their hand, in his hand, with discretion, 
working through those things with the Lord. It wasn't just living for, for more money to live on the next level up of comfort. Christians aren't called to do that. We're called to honor the Lord and be good stewards, to be gracious and open-handed, to guide our affairs with discretion. Verse 6, Surely he will never be shaken. The righteous will be in everlasting remembrance. What a beautiful phrase there. He will not be afraid of evil tidings. His heart is steadfast, trusting in the Lord. His heart is established. He will not be afraid until he sees his desires on his enemies. Here here we have this picture of the godly person. Notice these phrases. His heart unshaken, unafraid, steadfast, trusting, and established. Pretty incredible words. Incredible picture. Why? Again, because that is what God is like and what his word is like. If you go back to 111, 111 verse 6, if we compare again, God says he has declared to his people the power of his works in giving them the heritage of the nations. The works of his hands are verity, truth being, justice. All his precepts are sure. They stand fast forever and ever and they are done in truth and uprightness. So again, if that's who God is, if every precept of his is true and sure, every commandment of his is true and sure, that is saying something about him. Uh, It's weird a little bit for us to say that. C.S. Lewis points out the difference there in our language, particularly if I say the door is shut, that's a statement. If I said, shut the door, that's a command. I wouldn't typically say, shut the door is true. I would say, the door is shut is true. The statement I would would classify truth with. Well, when the Bible says God's commands are true, that's kind of weird. It's like saying, shut the door, that's true. The, The idea is being, they are sure, trustworthy. The person who's telling you that command, you can trust that person. It's going to work out. That is what you should do. If you follow that command afterwards, you'll say, man, I'm glad I did that. I listened. That was true. That was sure. That did not let me down. I'm glad I was following what that person said. God's commands are trustworthy because the person giving the command is trustworthy. And it's within that context now, again, that it says, verse 6, this godly person will never be shaken. The righteous will be in everlasting remembrance. They're not moved. Of course, our mind can go to the parable Jesus tells about the person who builds their house on the sand. We've all seen this with the flannel gram in children's ministry. And the person who builds his house upon the rock. And we talk about those things, and they're wonderful, but we forget that the parable is about obedience. Because what he says is, the person who hears these sayings of mine and does them not is like a person who builds the house on the sand. And the person who hears these sayings of mine and does them, keeps them, 
That's the person who builds his house on the rock. And you and I, to find surety, solidity in the Christian life, it is not simply found through knowledge. It has to start. I have to know the things that God says, and then I have to know that they're true. But I will not really know their solidity unless I put them into practice, unless I do them. Again, it's another reason that people read the Bible and it's just boring to them. Christians, at least, they begin to lose interest when they begin to lose intent to obey. Because they're reading the Bible and there's nothing in them that thinks, I will change the way I am married, I will change the way I am living, I will change the way I talk, I will change the way I post on social media, I will change whatever you want me to change, God. What do you want me to do? And when you begin to read like that, things change. When I'm just looking for a magic verse to pop out and strike my fancy... I walk away either entertained or not entertained. This righteous person is not shaken because they rest steadfast trusting in the Lord. They know his word is true. The things he has said, the things he has commanded, what he's called them to, they are not afraid. You notice it would seem like he could say this to us today, seven. He will not be afraid of evil tidings. We're afraid of evil tidings. There's evil tidings. There's never been more evil tidings in the world, more access of evil tidings than there is today. And even people without evil tidings can get afraid because they're just waiting for more evil tidings to come. I only have good tidings right now. I know the evil tidings got to be right around the corner. And we can worry about that everywhere, and we get more worried about the negative than we are sure in the things that God has said. And in his person, for us personally. We know that God has said things, like trust in the Lord with all your heart, lean out on your own understanding, and all your ways acknowledge him, and he shall direct your paths. But we get stuck in a scenario where we're like, I don't know what to do or where to go. And we believe God's guidance is out there, but it's probably for somebody else more righteous than us. And I am probably not going to find it. And then I'll just end up in a desert somewhere away from God. Out of God's will for my life. That's not going to happen. God's word is true for you and for me individually because of who he is not because of who i am because of who he is and when i begin to rest on that then i'm not shaken the man who has the word of god and rests in that simply the more simply they rest in it the more peace they will have it's going to be true either way I love the illustration of the children of Israel on the night of the Passover when God told them, when I see the blood, I will pass over. That was his word, and it was his estimation of the blood that mattered. 
So when they went out there and put the blood on the doorposts and went into their houses that night, it didn't matter how afraid they were. It didn't matter if they thought, maybe we didn't put it on right. Maybe we didn't say amen at the end. Maybe there was some leaven in the house we didn't find. Maybe they could have sweated it out. Maybe we didn't hear right. Maybe, maybe Moses messed up. Maybe none of that mattered. Want to know why? Because what God said was true. When I see the blood, I will pass over. Their estimation might have been small. Their faith might have been small. They might have been sweating it out. But if I was just a person who believed what God said and that God would be true to his word, I could have rested sure that night. And it was what the disciples began to learn walking with Jesus. They were worried about so many things. And then they began to figure this thing out that when he says something, it happens. And it always happens. And a lot of times it happens better than I would have thought. And he always comes through, even when he comes through in ways I wouldn't have expected. And that's why you find Peter sleeping in a jail cell, having to get kicked by an angel to wake up. It's because he wasn't moved. Not because he was so brave and courageous, but because he had learned that God's word and God's person are faithful. Paul would say in Acts, And see not I go bound in the Spirit to Jerusalem, not knowing the things that will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies in every city, saying that chains and tribulations await me. But none of these things move me, nor do I count my life dear to myself, so that I may finish my race with joy and the ministry which I have received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. I'm not moved. Even though the Holy Spirit's saying negative things are going to happen, I'm not moved. I know what God has told me to do. I know who he is. I know his word to me personally. I know the ministry that he gave me to do. And it is my joy and pleasure to live out that duty, to keep his commands, to find him in it, to walk with him in it, to abide with him in it. I'm not moved. And the world needs to see this. When the light rises out of the darkness for the individual godly man or woman, the world needs to see that righteous, godly man or woman walking in that light. We're not just saved to be Christians. We're saved to be lights in this world. They need to see that we're not moved like people who don't have the word of God are moved. We're not moved like people who don't walk with Jesus are moved. There's a difference in who we are, in who we walk with, in what we rest in. Is your heart afraid of evil tidings? Or, look at seven, is your heart steadfast, trusting in the Lord? Because it won't be steadfast and trusting in the Lord if it's not established on his precepts, which are sure They stand fast forever and ever. They have never been false, and they never will be false. They are sure forever and ever. And that's why 
that individual will be steadfast, trusting in the Lord. It's a rare thing nowadays. It's a difficult thing to live a steadfast life. We have a lot of different ideas of life, but just to be a faithful husband or wife or mom or dad, worker, Christian worker, who lives their life and serves in a church faithfully and can do that for their whole life, that's like a pretty rare thing nowadays. Thank God we don't live 900 years. None of us would have made it. And thank like God, I'm glad that I'm not going to have 800 years to mess up more. This, this is a pretty rare thing, just to be steadfast. It's constantly challenged. It's going to be challenged in new ways. But is God like to be steadfast? That's who he is, faithful to his commandment. He's never going to change. What he said is going to be true. It's going to work out just like he said it was going to work out. He said he was going to come the first time, and he came. He said he's going to come again, and he will. He said he's going to make a new heavens and new earth. It's going to happen. story can't change. His word and his person are steadfast. He has the power to bring it all to his ends. Every thought is going to come into line with the thought of God. Every human thought that's outside of God's thoughts is going to fall to nothing. If you think he doesn't exist, you're going to come in line with the fact that he does because of who he is. And a life that finishes steadfast, that's a rare and godly life. It is an aim to move for because it's not always easy. And there will always be something Notice it ate to be afraid of. But he will not be afraid. He will see his desire upon his enemies. Again, that, that no fear is not because of our courage or our ability or our trust in ourselves. It's because of our trust in him. That's why we don't fear. The disciples feared that they were going to die in a boat with Jesus. Now, if you were getting on an airplane and Jesus got on the airplane, you would feel good about that. This airplane is not going down. We got Jesus on board. We're cool. But they didn't know yet. They were learning these things. They were afraid. They didn't know that was the safest boat on the face of the earth to be in. Jesus is with them. And they were learning what it was to not be afraid because of him. And ultimately... Again, that righteous, godly man or woman is going to see his desire upon his enemies, the thing that they would fear or would invoke fear is not going to be the thing that wins in the end. Verse 9, he has dispersed abroad. He has given to the poor. His righteousness knows doubling down here endures forever and his horn will be exalted with honor there will be that place where he is lifted up again we see the giving nature there uh, the dispersing abroad the idea being that he is willing to sow widespread sowing causing a widespread harvest of joy paul would say to the corinthians 
But this I say, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. He who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. So that each one give as he purposes in his heart, not grudgingly or out of necessity. For God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound toward you, that you, always having all sufficiency in all things, may have an abundance for every good work. God will provide for you to have an abundance for every good work he wants you to walk in. As it is written, and here is our psalm, he has dispersed abroad, he has given to the poor, his righteousness endures forever. Paul picks this up as part of the godly life. Now may he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food supply and multiply the seed you have sown and increase the fruits of your righteousness. While you are enriched in everything for all liberality, which causes thanksgiving through us to God. God is a giver. He created the whole world before he put Adam and Eve in it. He fully prepped it with good things before he introduced them into it. He gave them literally the whole world. And he continues to give seed for the sower, Paul would say. Even whatever we would want to give, we had to get it from him first. And he's the first giver. He's the one who always makes the move first. None of us said, okay, God, I have a good idea. Can you send your son to die for my sin? Because that would be a great gift. No, he's more willing to give than we are to receive. And his spirit is like that. The Bible tells us Jesus, through the eternal spirit, offered himself. So many ways. So many ways. It's who he is. And it will be reflected in those that are his. There will be that emphasis, again, doubling down of righteousness that's enduring, eternal value and life. You know, what's the use of saying we're God's children if there's no family likeness? Godliness is God-likeness. Not any God, our God. Not likeness to Zeus or Buddha or other gods. Likeness to our God, who he is. That's why he would say over and over again in the Old Testament, you don't serve their gods and do like them, for I am the Lord your God. I am Jehovah. I'm not telling you to be like everybody. I'm telling you to be like me. This is what I am like. God is the perfect being. There is no being that you can think of that is greater than him. There is no quality that you can think of that's good that he does not possess in a greater way than you can even imagine it. He is perfect. There is nothing you can add from him and there is nothing you can take away from him. And he, his righteousness, it endures forever and he extends that to us. And if we don't see him as perfect... It's not because he has an issue. It's because we have an issue. If we can't see the beauty of who he is, if we don't want to be like him, then it's not because we see him clearly. It's because we don't see him clearly. 
you and I are called to be like him. We're never him completely, and he knows that. One author said, a dewdrop has its own rainbow. It's not the same, but it has its own reflection. And you and I are called to, again, reflect him, to be a part of his reflection in this world that we live in. And he will exalt that in due time. If we humble ourselves before him, obedience is part of our humbling, doing the things that he calls us to do. If we humble ourselves before him, he will exalt us in due time, in the right way. There are a lot of people who feel like they know the exalted position they should have. I'm always surprised about that. Like anybody in the Bible could have known who they should have been. Like Moses chose to be Moses, or Joshua chose to be Joshua, or Esther chose to be Esther, or Paul had any idea who he was going to be, or John the Apostle was like, I had a feeling one day you would write my name in the foundation stones of the heavenly Jerusalem. No, we can't have any idea. We just follow him, and he makes us into what he knows we should be. He exalts in due time, in his own way, but there is that exaltation. And the, the contrast there is with the wicked in verse 10. Again, in Psalm 111, there are those who fear the Lord. That is the beginning of wisdom. It's not all there is to it, but it's the beginning. Without that, you don't have any wisdom. You don't have any of God's thoughts outside of God. In him... You have that, but the contrast is set in 112. The wicked will see it, this godly life, the way it's lived, the things that we have expressed. A person who walks hearing God's word as if it's God's word, delighting to hear God's word and to live it out, liberally giving, gracious, compassionate, yet righteous in the world that they live in, sure and steadfast, unafraid of the things that they're hearing and evil tidings that could come to them trusting in the Lord and unmoved, giving abroad, not selfish. And the wicked will see that, and they will hate that. It will bug them. It will make their life miserable. They will despise the godly life. They always have, and they still do. From the minute Cain murdered Abel, there's always a segment that are not going to like the godly life. Again, we can't please everybody. Jesus didn't please everybody. Some people talk like that. Jesus made everybody happy. You do know that there are a lot of people who didn't like Jesus. <laughs> One time I was talking to a guy on the street. I'm like, you do know that numerous times people tried to murder him? And he was like, what? I'm like, yeah. Over and over again, they tried to kill him. So everybody didn't like Jesus. And if I'm like Jesus, some people should like me. And some people shouldn't like me. Just like some people will hear and see the godly life and the word of God and they will respond. And some people will hear and see the godly life and God's word and they will hate that. Jesus said they hated me. They will hate you too. It's not because of us. They shouldn't hate us because of our actions, because of our ungodliness. But the world 
should recognize, even though they don't have anything to say about our actions, they don't like our message. Because there's truth there. Truth that causes them to have to bow down to God. We don't just have a belief system. We have truth. People don't like that. I'm not on a spiritual journey. I have fact. Something sure and steadfast that stands forever. Something that draws a line even between families, Jesus said. A mother and father. Between parents and kids. He said, I come to bring a sword. Life with me is going to divide even in places. Because... I have something sure and steadfast. Every soul is created equal. God loves every soul, but not every idea about life. And we represent his word, and the wicked see it, and they are grieved. They gnash their teeth and melt away. There's there's a rebuke to the world. Paul will say, to some were the savor of life, to others the savor of death. And... That's what we're called to be here. That's what Jesus was. And there will always be individuals that come at that at one side or the other. At work, it'll be like that. Sometimes in our families, it'll be like that. Certainly in the world and its media, it will be like that. But that's what it was for Jesus Christ and for his disciples. It's what it's been for everybody that's followed him since. And that's what we're called to walk in in our day and age. To be this godly life that will matter to some. But in contrast, the wicked, they will not like it. But he finishes saying, the desire of the wicked will perish. What they want, what they hope in, what they're looking for. In the end, it will come to nothing. It will be vain. Our ultimate desire is being fulfilled. We gain it in him. We learn to love the things that he loves. The life that we live is not us living that life. It's Christ in us, the hope of glory. And our hearts and our minds are tied more and more to eternal things. And we begin to love those things. And our destiny, our desire is fulfilled in him. I get better versions of those things. The things I come to love here, the beauty in who he is, relationships, even the world he created. All of those things that are wonderful and good, they had their goodness communicated to them by God. And when I touch anything that's good in the right way, I get a small version of what I'm going to have for eternity. My ultimate desire being fulfilled in what is righteous. But the wicked, their ultimate desire is perishing, is passing, is fading. They already know they can't hold on to those things. They just try not to think about it. Don't want to talk about death. Or that the things I might try to enjoy in life are going. And certainly... The picture is there, I think, in one way for a warning. We, as people who are honoring and seeking to follow God, we are not to envy the wicked. Proverbs says, do not envy sinners. Don't let your heart envy sinners. We can't envy people whose end we would tremble at, Richard Sibbs says. 
How can I envy people whose end I would tremble at if we were to see it? We should pray for them. And the way we can help them is by being who God has called us to be. That's how we can help them. To be what he has called us to in this world. He begins it. We are a reflection of it. And if there's anything in there, certainly as there must be for all of us, that we think, okay, Lord, that's the thing you're speaking to me about. That's the thing that I need to receive from you. And I am lacking. (laughs) I do not know how to do that. Then the great thing is, good, your righteousness isn't your own. It comes through faith in him. He is the source. So turn to God and he will help conform you into his own image and likeness. It is his joy and will and pleasure to do that. Let's stand. We're going to pray. I encourage you again on your own, maybe jump back and do some more of the comparisons between the two psalms. There, I didn't get to work through everything. But let's pray. Lord, we just come to you and... um, Lord, we thank you for these reminders, these pictures, your truth. I pray, Lord, you would sanctify us through your truth. You say your word is truth. I pray, Lord Jesus, that you would do your good pleasure and conform us into your image and likeness. I pray that you would help us to offer ourselves to you a living sacrifice. Through your eternal spirit, there's no other way it can be done. But we know you're working out from in us to will and to do your good pleasure. So we put ourselves into your hand and we trust you, Lord. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.